0: Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 28 years we have offered Voices of Conscience, Key Issues in Ethical Perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the Senior Minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and moderator of today's program. It is my pleasure to introduce the first speaker in our fall series on Rebuilding. Today, September 11th, we recall the attack on our nation seven years ago. We remember the people who were lost, the heroes that were made. For more than 20 years, our guest speaker today has been an eyewitness to tragedies of similar and even greater magnitude, resulting from both natural disasters and human conflict around the world. Nancy Ossie is president and CEO of International Medical Corps, a humanitarian organization committed to, quote, saving lives and relieving suffering through medical relief, health care training, and development strategies that help build local self-reliance, end quote. With more than 4,000 staff and volunteers, IMC provides $130 million annually for relief and recovery programs. Under Ms. Ossi's leadership, it has become a global leader in medical crisis response. In the last two decades, International Medical Corps has responded to nearly every major crisis in our world, including the famine in Somalia, the Rwandan genocide, the conflicts in Darfur and in Uganda, the Southeast Asian tsunami, the Pakistani earthquake, and the cyclone in Myanmar. Ms. Ossie has served as Chairman of the Board of InterAction, the United States' largest coalition of private and voluntary organizations working in international development, refugee assistance, and disaster relief. She currently serves on the board of directors of Her Majesty Queen Rania al-Abdullah's Jordan River Foundation, USA, and on the advisory board of the Rand Center for Middle East Public Policy. Now a resident of Santa Monica, California, Ms. Ossie was born and raised next door in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and we are pleased to welcome her back home to the heartland. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum Nancy Ossie.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you for the very kind introduction, Tim, and thank you for inviting me to join you today, September 11th. I'm honored to commemorate 9-11 with you. The attacks in New York City and Washington DC remain a vivid and lasting impact on all of us as a country. But I know that we're not here to relive the shock and terror of that beautiful September morning. Uh, Today, we will explore the challenges of rebuilding. Seven years later, as America is still rebuilding from those attacks, I'd like to take some time to focus on the lessons learned from the rebuilding of shattered communities from the front lines of some of the most difficult working environments around the world. So I'm here today as a woman who has spent the past 22 years working with heroic doctors, nurses, and community health workers who respond to urgent needs resulting from natural disasters like the tsunamis and earthquakes and from man-made crises that result from war, famine, and displacement around the world. International Medical Corps has a dual mission that we believe is closely linked, emergency response in a natural disaster and crises, and a long-term commitment to rebuild devastated healthcare systems and devastated communities. So whether it's due to natural disasters or conflicts, Damage to a community and its health systems go far beyond the immediate crises. International Medical Corps not only delivers emergency humanitarian care in these places, but we also simultaneously launch the longer-term process of restoring and establishing a framework to rebuild health capacity for the future. This has been International Medical Corps' mission and mandate since our beginning and it is the basis for the title of my talk today, which is Hope Amidst Devastation. Our founder, a young emergency room doctor, Dr. Bob Simon, wanted to do something to help the people of Afghanistan following the 1979 invasion by the Soviet Union. Bob was deeply concerned about the plight of the Afghan people who were forced to live under Soviet occupation. He was the first American physician to travel to the country and offer medical aid inside the country. He and his team of volunteers saw how Afghan medical professionals were targeted in the Soviet's invasion. Physicians and nurses had been killed or fled the country as refugees to Pakistan and Iran Civilians in Afghanistan were also being targeted and, in search of medical assistance and food and safety, were forced to flee to these border camps. In fact, more than five million Afghan refugees made a home in these camps. On his first trip to Afghanistan, Bob realized that good intentions did not begin to address most of the health needs that were killing the Afghan people. In fact, short-term, International humanitarian assistance might inadvertently stifle the American or the Afghan imperative to rebuild their fractured healthcare system. Our teams gave emergency care to children who had stepped on landmines, to mothers gathering water at local streams who were wounded by machine guns shot from helicopters, and to fathers with frostbitten toes from walking over snow-covered mountains to try to bring their family to safety. And we trained Afghans to be medics so that they themselves could treat more than 85% of all the illnesses and injuries they encountered in their own villages. Our impact was multiplied many times over by these newly trained Afghan health workers in their communities. International Medical Corps' mission was established to save lives by providing emergency health care and to lay the foundation for a healthy future by rebuilding these healthcare systems throughout a country. As Tim mentioned, I was born and raised not far from here in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and I will always still consider myself a real Midwesterner. I completed my undergraduate and graduate studies at the University of Northern Iowa and left for the warmth of California shortly after graduation. It was there that I learned about the work of International Medical Corps and I joined as its head shortly after its founding. Our belief that training and rebuilding could coexist in the midst of such chaos as that in Afghanistan was a very new and untried approach at at that time in the mid-80s. But we knew that it was the best way to create lasting change by investing in rebuilding at the time of the emergency response. In those early days, we figured out how to most effectively respond and rebuild in places like Afghanistan, Angola, Somalia, Bosnia, Sudan, and Rwanda. Those startup years are forever imprinted in my mind. Our office space was a donated house and we kept our records in shoeboxes. Since then, we have grown to have more than 4,000 staff and volunteers working worldwide to address global health in more than 25 countries and regions around the world. The underlying element in our approach is that emergency medical relief and the rebuilding campaign begins as soon as International Medical Corps teams arrive on the scene. International Medical Corps works both in natural disasters and also in what we call fragile states that are impacted by complex emergencies. For example, the 1994 Rwandan genocide provided hard lessons that affirmed our two pronged protocol. International Medical Corps responded to the genocide inside Rwanda very shortly after it began. I joined our emergency response team and saw the tragedy and disaster, and it was unlike anything I have ever seen before. The scale The swiftness, the brutality of the killing was just staggering. Bodies were literally piled everywhere, in schools, in churches, at roadblocks and hospitals. I still remember the smell of death and the gripping, gripping fear. At the International Medical Corps Hospital in Kabungo, we had to bury the corpses of the doctors and the nurses, ourselves, before we could deliver services in those hospitals. Understandably, local people were too terrified to help and remained hiding in the forest. Providing patient care to the sick and injured was incredibly difficult. We were working around the clock. Almost all the international organizations had evacuated from the country and the incoming relief organizations were drawn to the tough yet safer refugee camps in Uganda and the Democratic Republic of Congo. In fact, at one point, one International Medical Corps volunteer doctor from Kansas was the only surgeon in southern Rwanda. The Tutsis had made up the majority of Rwanda's health professionals before the genocide, and their death had led to a serious shortage of health workers from which it would take years to recover. So we began to rebuild the health system, one step at a time, focusing on training community nurses and mid-level health workers, as well as developing the skills of local managers who would need to support them. We provided on-the-job training and clinical skills, as well as supervision techniques. We paired up with local health workers. Uh, We uh, provided counterpart training, and we provided technical assistance and material support to the Ministry of Health. We also rehabilitated district hospitals and health centers, all critical elements of an effective health system. We started this activity immediately and we continued once the initial emergency was over. We have seen that after the disaster emergency, many societies slide backwards dramatically. Local economies, education, and healthcare are all victims. These crises not only impact the immediate needs of the populations, they put long-term health at risk. It is also important to remember that the health systems in many disaster-affected or conflict-prone countries are often weak prior to the emergency itself. Additionally, there is a global health worker shortage. The World Health Organization estimates that in the next decade, we will be short 4 million health care workers. In an emergency when the future fades into the shadows, International Medical Corps' commitment to rebuilding is often a bright beacon of hope for people who live in these societies. The world's least developed countries, fragile states, have little or no capacity to deal with natural disasters like the 2004 tsunami. More than 230,000 people died immediately Those who survived were left without even their most basic needs, access to clean water, food and shelter. Their means for earning an income were destroyed along with their homes. Hospitals and clinics were wiped out and many healthcare workers themselves were injured or died. People were at risk from major outbreaks of diseases such as diarrhea and upper respiratory infections due to a lack of clean water proper sanitation and shelter, fortunately, the international community mobilized very quickly to bring in clean water and tents, which avoided many of the problems that would have been there had that not happened. And certainly, our country was very, very generous during the days of the tsunami. The large number of increased, uh, the large number of injured increased the demand for trauma surgeons and emergency medical facilities. International Medical Corps galvanized medical professionals. Supplies and personnel traveled by air, land, and sea, where we reached the most isolated isolated communities who were very, very um, desperate for help. As part of our rebuilding efforts, International Medical Corps worked with an Indonesian group of first responders after the tsunami, helping them to speed up their own response time from seven days to less than 24 hours, which as you know, saves both time and money. And recently, the Indonesian team was ready to bring their skills to the suffering after the Myanmar cyclone. Our commitment to train and rebuild not only had repercussions in the tsunami-stricken areas, but also allowed the teams we train to offer aid and tools for long-term recovery to people inside their community and outside their community. Less than a year after the tsunami, Hurricane Katrina devastated the Louisiana and Mississippi coastlines. We all watched in disbelief as events unfolded. News reports from the golf course were all too familiar for me. I had seen these painful images throughout the world, but never imagined them here in the U.S. Hundreds were killed, and those impacted by the hurricane were left without clean water, food, and shelter. International Medical Corps responded immediately with emergency logistics teams. We coordinated volunteer doctors and nurses to run mobile clinics. We also provided structured psychosocial activities for children and their families at a FEMA trailer park, giving residents there a mechanism to cope with their grief. But it wasn't easy. Local, state, and the federal government weren't prepared. Humanitarian. Organizations were met with bureaucratic obstacles that seriously impeded our emergency response. Certainly for those most directly impacted, the response and recovery has been very poorly handled. Major mistakes were made, many painful lessons learned. The response to Hurricane Gustav was evidence that experience is often a good teacher. Before Gustav made landfall, a mandatory evacuation, as you know, was announced. Shelters were set up for the displaced, and levees were monitored closely. Fortunately, Gustav did not cause the level of destruction it could have in a very fragile area, still very much in the process of rebuilding. Less than a year after the tsunami struck, the northwest frontier province of Pakistan was hit by a 7.6 magnitude earthquake, the worst in the region's history. Killed approximately 80,000 people and leaving millions homeless in the bitter, bitter cold of the snowy mountains. Many of these people were children alone and under the age of five. With losses in livestock crops and irrigation pop lines totaling hundreds of millions of dollars, this da- disaster presented many challenges to humanitarian workers. International Medical Corps mobilized five rapid response teams within 12 hours of the earthquake providing emergency medical care, and conducting assessments for the immediate and long-term needs of the most impacted areas. Despite the fact that most roads were blocked by rubble, our local staff, locally trained staff, made their way by helicopter, mule, and foot to remote, hard-hit villages providing vital care. Doctors and nurses made their way through the snow to treat the sick and the injured many of whom had lost one or more of their family members. We supplied emergency medical care, vaccinations to prevent measles and other potentially deadly outbreaks, blankets and winterization materials for tents and hygiene and cooking kits. During the initial disaster response phase, we airlifted approximately five tons of medical supplies and provided sanitation services and access to clean water to numerous people displaced throughout the community. We taught doctors and nurses how to recognize and treat mental illness, often exasperated by the trauma of such an earthquake. We also put local populations to work rebuilding water and sanitation systems. In doing so, we not only responded to the immediate needs, but also utilized this very tragic event as an opportunity to invest in the future of the Pakistani people. Our commitment to rebuild is the foundation of absolutely all of our activities. People received more than direct relief, but also the foundation to reconstruct their own communities. Capacity building and training, which is at the heart of everything we do, shores of gaps where the needs are the greatest, and sets up the framework needed to rebuild long-term. Whether it's working with countries like Indonesia to bolster their emergency preparedness, training doctors in Pakistan to recognize and treat mental illness, or training community health workers in Afghanistan to provide vital care during conflict, International Medical Corps builds skills during the emergency phase so that communities can once again help themselves. In addition to restoring self-reliance, our training instills pride, confidence, and hope. All of these are absolutely recri- critical to rebuilding broken communities. The universal doctrine of human rights promises all people a standard of living that includes health and well being. This fundamental right is not suspended because there is a natural disaster or emergency. In fact, Our work is often guided by the words of Dr. Martin Luther King who said, of all the forms of inequity, injustice in healthcare is the most shocking and inhumane. Our work is essential but not easy. We face enormous challenges and obstacles. Logistics often make it close to impossible to get medical help and supplies to people who are suffering. They are often isolated in very remote locations. Prior to the emergency, there are few doctors and nurses and few hospitals. And those that do exist are primitive in nature, if those hospitals exist at all. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, there is one doctor for every 10,000 people. In Liberia, there's one doctor for every 30,000 people. In contrast, here in the United States, we have 25 doctors for every 10,000 people. Countries in Sub-Saharan Africa with high rates of disease, conflict, and disaster have as few as 3% of the world's healthcare workers. This shortage, compounded by the devastating impact that HIV-AIDS has had on health workers and health systems, has increased the already heavy global di- disease burden and other health issues. Our work is very dangerous. The neutral ground, once respected by all combatants, is shrinking very quickly. Since January of '08, a shocking total of 53 humanitarian workers were killed worldwide. Despite the dangers, the strength of our success is the people who live in these communities. Their trust, involvement, and ownership are absolutely required in order to successfully rebuild. We have invested greatly in winning the trust of local people. They are integral to our success and impact. But as you might imagine, this is not always an easy task in places where disappointment, conflict, and betrayal dominate daily life. Our staff often put their lives at risk while just trying to help others in their communities. I remember being in Bosnia in 1993, traveling to a camp, constantly scanning the horizon for snipers as we traveled along Sniper Alley, a terrifying mountain pass where passing civilians, journalists, and humanitarian workers and children were used for target practice by the Serbian militia armed with long-range rifles. Today, it's even worse. Humanitarian workers are often pawns in the game of war. They have increasingly become targets of kidnapping and violence. Caught in the crossfire, humanitarian workers can no longer expect to go safely about their work. This danger has been growing for the past decade or so, making it difficult to deliver not only immediate relief, but seriously putting long-term rebuilding at risk. An International Medical Corps nurse was killed last year in Somalia and another recently kidnapped. In Darfur, one of our vehicles took 23 rounds of small arms fire in a deliberate shoot to kill ambush. Just this past July, three of our staff members were killed and one of our midwives was wounded in Afghanistan. We can never forget that we live in a world not only of increasing risks, but also one of rapidly changing threats that impact global health, including those associated with climate change, globalization, and violence. However, in spite of these obstacles and danger, in each country where we work, we lay the foundation to rebuild and improve health systems. This means instilling water and sanitation systems, building clinics and outfitting them with equipment and supplies, and rehabilitating hospitals. Our approach of providing direct services while building for the future needs to be scaled up. But making the connection between immediate needs and supporting long term healthcare capacity is not always easy. In general, both attention and funding go to the immediate aftermath of emergencies. While the intractable, challenging problems of rebuilding often take a back seat. Emergencies are extremely dramatic and the images are very compelling. The short attention span of our world, seduced by the drama of yet another emergency, makes coverage of these long-term complex problems all the more challenging. Resources are needed to address both. Unfortunately, securing long-term resources for protracted emergencies and rebuilding is very difficult. We must develop the political will to secure funds, not just for relief in emergencies, but also to foster stability and to support the training of health care workers and the rebuilding of health systems and of communities as these countries transition from emergency to self-reliance. The general public and all of you have a crucial role in balancing the commitments between resource supply to emergencies and to long-term programs. Often individuals respond generously to emergencies inspired by television or print stories of suffering and de- devastation and think back to that 2004 tsunami, where the images played out in almost real time, as a result, very generous people around the world, but especially in America, donated billions of dollars because of the compassion that they felt and the images that they saw unfolding in front of their television screens. I implore generous individuals to not only give during this, these emergency phases but to also remain involved and to invest with organizations like International Medical Corps that are committed to rebuilding health systems for the long term. It's also very important to amplify your voices as citizens. During emergencies, funds may flow freely. But what happens when something is not in the news or it's no longer politically relevant? Our resources need to address the emergency, but also support reconstruction in order to assure that we're contributing to long-term health systems and to rebuilding communities long-term in those countries affected by disasters and conflict. We can never take the fact that a society will be able to rebuild post-emergency for granted. In addition to resources, we must also remember that it takes political leadership, the belief that it is possible to move forward after an emergency, and strong collaborations between local people who want to help their communities and are often willing to put their lives at risk, and other organizations like International Medical Corps and other uh, good groups out there. And there, within the communities that we work with and serve, lies the hope for a better future, and lies the hope amidst devastation. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Nancy Aussie. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originated from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is president and CEO of International Medical Corps, Nancy Aussie. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience at Westminster, I'd like to thank the hundreds of individual donors who have made today's forum possible. We invite you to join us in the sanctuary for our next forum on Thursday, September 25th, two weeks from today, with social activist Jack Nelson-Palmeyer speaking on Building a Movement to Rescue a Nation and Save the Earth. And now, Nancy Aussie, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. The First question picks up right where you left off about political will. To what extent does the work that your organization is involved in and others like it actually reflect what governments should be doing?
1: Excellent question. Um, Unfortunately, in many of the places that International Medical Corps works, we do not have um, the cooperation uh, or the cooperation or even the blessing of the government. Uh, And in many of the places we work, Uh, there is not necessarily a functioning government. And I'll give you a couple examples. In Somalia in 1991, there was total anarchy. So there was no government to work with or to ask for its cooperation. So sometimes the the government doesn't exist or the government is so weak uh, that they really cannot be helpful. In the places where the government does exist and function, We try very, very hard to work with them to support the good things that they are doing for their communities, both at the national level but certainly at the um, local level. And so we will work closely and support the work of local governments and of ministries of health when they are interested in caring for their own people. Where the big challenge arises in some places is that the government may be supportive of the work and of helping their own people. But local warlords, um, militia, uh, you know, different groups, um, rebel groups control the resources and control um, in large part what happens in that community. And because these people don't care about um, the needs of their community, it's often very difficult to work in environments and to do it safely, Let alone with their cooperation um, of any kind.
0: Your goal seems so clear, one questioner asks, marked by common sense, reason, and reality. You'll be glad to hear that, I'm sure. Why are your functions, though, not covered by the United Nations? Why a volunteer relief organization such as yourself and not the United Nations?
1: International Medical Corps has several operating frameworks with the United Nations. For instance, we work with the World Health Organization, uh, and we have worked closely with UN OCHA and UNHCR, apologize for the acronyms. But what we do that's a little different, what non-governmental organizations do, like us, is that we work very much at the community level and not at the political level, but at the community level, and work locally with communities. It's very much a grassroots-level effort, and it's in and among communities. And as a result of that, we are often able to work in areas where the UN may not be able to work. Um, And at other times, we are able to work in areas where we are actually an implementing partner of the UN, as with UNICEF, who is one of our major partners um, and does great work. we, we exist because we're privately organized and supported by private individuals, which is important. And we are able to work inside communities at the grassroots level, which the UN is not always able to do, just because of the way that they are structured. But that is the reason why they often partner with um, organizations like ours.
0: One of our listeners asks if, uh, we, if you collaborate locally with, uh, with our agency founded here, the American Refugee Committee, are you involved with working with I them? I know
1: them out. They're an ec- excellent organization. I've known them for years, going back many, many years. And yes, we have uh, collaborated with them a number of times. They're a great, great organization.
0: How do you measure the long-term success of your work in the areas in which you've needed to provide short-term assistance? How do you measure long-term success? Can you give us some illustrations, too?
1: Sure. Uh, Afghanistan. We've been there the longest since 1984. In Afghanistan, despite all the political challenges and all the violence um, that occurred to this very day, we have measured our long-term impact by how quickly we were able to help the Afghan people help themselves. So, for instance, in Afghanistan, the face of International Medical Corps is that of the Afghan doctor, the Afghan nurse, the Afghan logistician. Our impact there is not just the millions of people we've reached over the years, year after year, but the fact that the people helping people in Afghanistan are Afghans themselves.
0: Several questions about uh, Burma and Myanmar. We haven't heard much about the recovery efforts. What has trans- transpired there? What do you know about the current situation?
1: It, this, it's a very difficult situation um, for all the reasons that are well known. Uh, we, um, International Medical Corps, launched a response there, as did a number of organizations who already had a presence on the ground, uh, and were able to get a lot done there. Uh, the difficulty, is access to some of the most remote communities and the fact that um, it's very, very hard to work in some of the places where we work fundamentally uh, because that access is not easy to get to uh, and the flow of information is not there either.
0: Beyond the political problems like those your group would have encountered in Myanmar, what are some of the other difficulties or roadblocks you encounter as you attempt to respond to disasters?
1: I always think that the unsung hero is the logistician. I, before I joined the International Medical Corps, I can't say I really knew what a logistician did. I definitely know what they do now, um, and especially in the startup of a program. The startup of a program, uh, and I was involved in many startups over the years, like Rwanda uh, or Somalia, is especially difficult because you have to figure out how to get safely from point A to point B. And because we work in isolated communities, one of the biggest challenges we always face is how to reach the people that are most difficult to reach, because they're the ones who are not getting served, and then how to set up safe supply routes and roads, et cetera, so that we can move people around and move supplies supplies around and, of course, share knowledge. And I would say that is um, those are some of the challenges that we have to some extent overcome in many places like Darfur uh, and some of the toughest places we work, but uh, every country is different and every country needs to be locally evaluated and and assessed so that we can determine the best way to get things done in these remote um, parts of the world.
0: How have you seen uh, your organizations rebuilding work and responding to disasters Uh, How have you seen the impact of your work on tribal hatreds or ethnic conflicts in fragile states, Ethiopia, Somalia, Kenya?
1: We have a phrase that we uh, coined a few years ago um, called peace through health. And that was as a result of um, some programs we launched in Afghanistan um, and one in particular in Angola where warring, the the government of Angola was um, having um, problems with rebels and the rebels were having problems with the government and the civilians were caught in the crossfire. And we created a joint immunization campaign where we brought people who would normally kill each other together and talked to them about children in their communities, which they cared about, and created a program where they worked together, they studied together, and they conducted immunization campaigns throughout their villages together. And so we have had lots of opportunities over the years to bring people together, people who might normally hate one another, around things that they care about jointly, like their children, uh, like their families. It's not an easy thing. The hatred and the uh, runs very deep in many of the communities we work. But we have found that this is an effective way to bring people to a different level where they're helping their communities rather than harming them.
0: Your organization was born in the conflict in Afghanistan, the invasion of the Soviet Union there 25 years ago. Uh, Are you still involved in Afghanistan? If so, what do your people see that is similar to the time of the Soviet invasion given the conflict going on now, the results of the Taliban and their leadership over many years and the U.S. involvement today?
1: We've been, we are still involved there and have been since 1984. Um, Afghanistan for International Medical Corps, it was our flagship program. It was the reason that Dr. Bob Simon founded um, our organization. Over the years, there have been so many challenges, and certainly everyone's aware of the ones we face today. I would say that one of the major challenges we face today it's, it's not the will of the Afghan people, it's not the motivation, it's not because they themselves don't love their country and, and, and want their country to thrive. What's happening there is that there are fundamental um, economies that have been set up um, that um, threaten, you know, threaten the stability of Afghanistan. Of course, um, you know, heroin, the heroin trade, et cetera, uh, it faces a lot of problems. I mean, it accounts for a big part of um, the country's GNP. And so the challenges for Afghans who don't want to be part of that, who care about their people, care about their country, and don't want to grow poppy, um, are often at risk themselves. Uh, They can make a living doing something else, um, and they often don't want to be a part of, 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 um, of those things. But the problem is they're often at risk, their families are often at risk if they defy that and they still have to find a way to make a living, which um, they, they are doing by growing other crops. Uh, but it's, it's, I cannot overemphasize, and I know I've said this a number of times today, when, when we look at our own lives, uh, we make choices every day, um, and everyone comes to that choice based on their own experiences and what they think is the right thing to do. Uh, in, in places like Afghanistan, uh, where there is conflict, or Darfur, or the Congo, or Sierra Leone, uh, you know, where the child soldiers, um, and Uganda as well. P- the choices people make are a little different. They, you know, in a Darfur, a woman has to decide whether or not she's going to send her child, who might be, her girl child, who might be raped to get water, but she will be raped, or her boy child, who will be killed. I mean, think about those choices. In places um, like Afghanistan and many other places, people are taking a risk by doing the right thing in their own societies. But it is a big risk. A lot of times we think about we would risk our lives. I think the difficulty is not to ask ourselves that. I think the difficult question is, would we risk the life of our child? Those are the questions that people face every day in the societies we work in. And That's why when they try to do something in their society that is good and when they work with groups like International Medical Corps or the American Refugee Committee, they are often taking great risk and they are making choices that I know that I don't have to make every day and those are not easy choices.
0: Several questions from our listeners about Cuba and their response to the recent hurricanes there that have uh, provoked so much damage on that island. Our government was quick to respond to Haiti as it was hit by the hurricanes and yet has done practically nothing in response to Cuba's devastation. Any comment about the politics of uh, relief work in that area of the Caribbean?
1: You know, I, I don't have a comment just because I'm not familiar enough with um, you know, the inner workings of our government. Uh, I wish I could uh, give an opinion on that, but I just don't even.
0: Any comment on Cuba's own internal response to uh, disasters when, when they strike?
1: I, I don't um, I don't have a comment because I just don't know enough about it.
0: Well, then let's move on to yeah. another question. <laughs> Sorry. <though. laughs> what about Palestine and Israel? Are you involved at all in that conflict uh, area? No,
1: we're not, not. involved there. We're, we have programs throughout the Middle East, but we're not involved there.
0: Let me try another one. The country of Georgia. Have you been involved or asked to become involved in Georgia?
1: We've set up a rapid response. Any time there's a, something like what happened in Georgia, we immediately mobilized what we call a rapid response team. And this is a group of our experts who know when they get to a particular country, what the priorities will be. They know what questions they ask to ask, and they know how to prioritize the needs so that we can be the most effective in our response. Uh, So we assembled a rapid response team. um, And in the end, it was decided that organizations working on the ground in Georgia could best handle many of the needs there. So we are not operating there now, and we did not have a presence there before.
0: What about Katrina? Did you have a rapid response team mobilized for that disaster?
1: We, we did. Uh, we hesitated with Katrina because we hadn't ever responded to an emergency before um, in the U.S. And frankly, uh, we were a little bit sensitive to not wanting to respond while everyone is fundraising, if we really didn't have something to offer. So we were a little bit careful about making sure that we had something to offer. As it turns out, a number of our own public health experts um, that we dispatched to other countries were from the area. Many were uh, affiliated with Tul- Tulane. And um, we saw very quickly that we, there was something we could actually do. So we mobilized uh, teams of our international experts uh, to go there and to help in some mobile clinics, and we did some a number of things on mental health there as well.
0: Your vast experience in responding to disasters around the world, what in your estimation, uh, was the problem with Katrina response? Why was it so poorly handled?
1: Well, a lot of it was information sharing. I know it sounds boring, but um, one of the things that works well in many of the emergency disasters around the world that uh, International Medical Corps has responded to, is the fact that when you are on the ground, you know what's happening you know, next door to you. Uh, uh, the movements of people are being tracked, you know what, where people are, you know what the needs are, and the way you know that is because people are in, in an area and they communicate and they share that information. And so there are formal mechanisms set up, say through the UN, the UN is very good at this, which are the coordinating mechanisms, there's something called UN OCHA, coordinating mechanisms, and a lot of that is about sharing information so that organizations can coordinate and not provide the wrong kinds of assistance into areas that don't need it. That was certainly missing. The communication function was absolutely missing um, in Katrina, which is why there was so much confusion about what the needs were, where people were, and what was happening, uh, the basic communication systems. Uh, and of course, uh, you know every every um, situation is different. Uh, but there were bureaucratic obstacles uh, that we ran into here in the U.S. because of our own our own country's um, you know bureaucracy. Some countries there is no bureaucracy because there is no there are there isn't anything. There isn't government. There aren't institutions. Uh, the flip side of that is a lot of other things are in problem. You know, a big problem too. So that's not a good thing. Um, But I would say the biggest noticeable was the communication systems in Katrina, and I think that's what led to a lot of the the confusion in those early days.
0: Uh, Many congregations, Christian communities, and others in North America are involved in medical relief and other efforts in uh, other parts of the world. Can you comment on religious groups' efforts in in responding to crises, both short-term and long-term?
1: Sure. I've seen... Uh, the work of many uh, missionaries around the world in some of the most far-flung, remote places, and uh, I must tell you, it's extraordinary. Uh, for those of you who've ever participated uh, in a, in, you know, a mission like that, you know how difficult it is. You know how rewarding it is, but it's very, very difficult. Uh, and um, and I will also say, that, you know, the work that missionaries do is greatly appreciated by people in those in those populations, those countries. When you view it through their lens, here's a person traveling all the way from across the world off into a society they've never been to, uh, and a langu- you know, among people who speak a language they don't speak, perhaps the culture is different, the conditions are very rough and they really genuinely appreciate, as you have probably seen, the fact that you're even there Uh, So I think, um, you know, it's like anything, even within the non-governmental organization, there are a lot of wonderful organizations out there, and there are always a few that give everyone else a bad name, and certainly I'm sure that's true among missionary work. But my experience with missionary work has been that when the work is focused on listening to the local population and to listening to what they need versus imposed upon them, um, the work can be very effective and long-lasting. When it is, I think, my own personal opinion, when it's not effective and long-lasting is when any organization, whether it be an NGO or a missionary, tries to impose upon other people um, things that they can't accept or things that you know, they don't agree with or things that they don't believe, and that usually does not work very well.
0: There are several questions from our listeners about Minnesota native Greg Mortensen and his book, Three Cups of Tea, about Afghanistan. Have you read the book? Do you have any comment about it and uh, his work?
1: Yes, I haven't read the book. I'm very familiar with the book, um, but I haven't, I haven't actually read it, so I can't comment. I do know that it's inspired a number of people and some young people who have since got involved with our work at International Medical Corps, so I guess I need to go back and read it.
0: I think you do, speaking as a Minnesotan.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, returning to the question of people who actually volunteer with your organization, how does that work? If I'm, say, I'm a doctor or a nurse and I have skill and interest and motivation to go abroad with you, what do I do?
1: Uh, I hate to say this, but I would say the first thing you should do is go to our website, www.imcworldwide.org or you can Google us under International Medical Corps. So thank you for letting me plug my website. But really, that is the best place to visit if, a, if you're interested, because it's there that we post our current needs. Uh, and it might be that we need a doctor in the Congo. It could mean that we need a logistician in Darfur. It could mean that we need an accountant um, in Mozambique. But we have a set of needs at any one time. And if we don't have a need for someone at that time, we put them, We you can go to the site and register and fill an application. And when so, there's an emergency or when something comes up, we tap our, our database of people who are available and we look at their skill sets and their languages and what, what they particularly offer and compare them to our needs um, at the time. Our needs change constantly. I will say that during an emergency, obviously, it's easier to raise money during an emergency when images are on television and Americans are, um, you know, watching these images. Uh, but it is also easier to recruit um, people who are interested in working overseas. Unfortunately, uh, you know, as difficult as, as Banda Aceh was when we responded in Banda Aceh during the tsunami, which is, was the hardest hit area, Uh, As difficult as it is, we don't need a 1,000 doctors and nurses to send there, especially because we have a local capacity. Um, So what we do is, if we don't need all the people who are applying, they do go into this database and we do mine it and we do look through it. It's the first place we go when we have a need in one of our countries.
0: Last question, brief answer. Uh, How do you maintain your hope in, in spite of what you encounter every day in your work now for 22 years with IMC?
1: Through the people that we work with, they are the hope. Uh, I remember out, shortly after September 11th, um, seven years ago now, uh, in November, I traveled to Peshawar, Pakistan, where we had been operating programs for years and training Afghan women who had lost everything to be master trainers so that they could reach out and train midwives in their own communities. And Dr. Shamal, one of our doctors, had lost everything, and I was feeling kind of down myself. And I said to her, you know, How do you do this? And she said, I have hope. She said, it's hope is what keeps me going. Hope is the reason to live. Hope is the reason that I want to help people in my community. And they are such an inspiration. I came back from that trip, and I realized it is the hope of the people that we serve, the people who live in really tough situations. And I say to myself, if they can do it, and they can keep going, and they can be hopeful, then so can I. Thank
0: you, Nancy Ossie.